I know a preacher who apparently gives money to his children each time he uses them as an illustration in his sermons. I, I don't give, that's not me. Not because I don't use them in sermons, but because I don't want to give them money. But I realize the, the kind of that unfairness of it all if you're a preacher's kid that you get used for your dad's material and you, and you know, it's like, so I, you know, you've heard me use, tell stories about my children. Uh, oftentimes it's funny stuff. It's never really the bad stuff. I don't mind being transparent for myself, but I'm not going to throw my wife and kids under the bus to get a cheap laugh. <laughs> I just got a big thank you. You could laugh at me. I could be honest with you. Not that I'm trying to paint a perfect picture because the Sack family is not a perfect picture, but you could probably just see that by looking at us. The last time my kids argued that I really remember it, you know what it was about? Like really argued and like got into it. My, my youngest two in particular, I won't name names or give ages. I just identified them. Someone pushes somebody, someone does this, and I'm like, what's going on? Why did you, why did you push him? He was chewing in my ear. Are you kidding me? He's chewing in my ear. How many times have I said, why did you hit your brother? Why did you push your brother? What did you do? Well, he bumped me. He pushed me. He, he chewed in my ear. He breathed on me. Can, can you just ease my mind and let me know that I'm not the only parent out there with those kids? Oh, good. Oftentimes I've learned to say, well, did he do that on purpose? No, notice I never said she, because this is like an angel kid over here. Did, did, did he do that on purpose? And they're, they're really, oftentimes they're like, no. Were they, were they being malicious? No. So really, you are responding to something that you know full and well wasn't an act of aggression, but you're responding in aggression. There's just a blindness to how they contribute to that mess and to the conflict. And you've already raised your hand, so I know your kids are blind. I would tell your kids stories too. I just don't know your kids' stories. <laughs> but where does this blindness come from? And I, as a parent, I see this, and there's probably, this is probably the one area of being a parent that I would like to change the most about my kids. Like, I know my job is to raise them and not necessarily fix them. There's a fine line there, right? But uh, the area of their, kind of the blindness to their own self in all of this and their relations, because it's going to have implications for their family when they grow up, for their jobs, for their social lives. Huge implications when you're just that blind to your contribution into some of the mess. So I'd like to see this happen because, quite honestly, see, I throw my kids under the bus a little bit, but what I see in them, I realize, is a reflection of me, that we really, we really do reproduce who we are, and what I see in them is self-righteousness. And what I know is true is that self-righteousness and being self-righteous is not a disease that goes through the genetic pool of the Sack family. It goes through, really, the DNA of all humanity. Am I right? We all are adverse to people who are self-righteous. We endure them. We, we survive being around them. We don't really want to be around the people who are always right. And the only way to get by is to actually withdraw from real relationship, kind of share that space, and kind of let them talk and be right. Because you know if you try to engage in a relationship, they really don't care. They just want to be right. And so we're quick to point, people, point fingers at people who are self-righteous, but then we realize sometimes we are self-righteous. And it would be helpful at this point to define what it means to be self-righteous. I mean, self, self-righteousness is such a, such a thing that they write books about it, but they don't call it self-righteousness. One of the, one of the most profound books I've read in recent years was 
uh, a purely secular business book called Leadership and Self-Deception by the Arbringer Institute. And the whole premise of the book is that the way we interact with people is depends on how we see them. If we're in the box towards someone, they are the source of our problems. We kind of see them as objects. But if we're out of the box, we see them as people with needs and emotions and fears and all that. And how really you can pretend to act a certain way, but what's really going on in your heart, in your mind towards somebody, if you're in the box, it comes through. It shines through. People know how you really feel about them, no matter how, how much you smile or... We can't fake that. There's a, there's a communication that goes far deeper than our facial expressions and our, and our words. And the secret to actually getting out of the box is to question your own virtue. For a moment to say, maybe I'm not totally right. Maybe I have a part to play. And, and to kind of like open your eyes to maybe the blindness that comes so easily to us, to our contribution, to what we're bringing to that relationship Really, you could repackage this book. I don't think it would sell, but I think a really good retitling of this book would be, you're a self-righteous jerk at work. (laughs) Who's going to buy that book? It might be a great gift to give to your boss. (laughs) But no one's going to buy that book and be like, yeah, I'm a self-righteous jerk at work. Great book. Leadership and Self-Deception. Look it up on Amazon. Order it now. I will let you ignore me for the next five seconds and order that on Amazon because it's such a good book. Let's define self-righteousness. One dictionary says self-righteousness or being self-righteous is convinced of one's own righteousness, especially in contrast with the actions and beliefs of others. Narrowly minded, more, narrowly mindedly, narrow-mindedly moralistic. Another dictionary says confident of one's own righteousness, especially when smugly moralistically, moralistic, my family says smudge, but smugly moralistic and tolerant of the opinion and intolerant of the opinions and behaviors of others. Synonyms. I had to practice that word in my office, not cinnamons. Synonyms for self-righteous, egotistical, hypocritical, sanctimonious. That's a holier than thou. Now I read those definitions and I think to myself, I don't know that I totally agree. Not that I'm smarter than Merriam Webster. But I read those definitions, and I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying I, I don't know the history of how that word has developed through the, through the years. But I kind of feel like it's maybe evolved to, to be defined the way we use it commonly in 2020. See, I agree with the part that says being, self, being confident of one's own righteousness or, or convinced that one is righteous. But all the negative ugly side of that thing, the, the, the less than desirable traits, the holier than thou, sanctimonious, smugly moralistic. Isn't that more like the fruit of being self-righteous? Don't you become self-righteous, convinced you're right first before all that ugliness kind of spills out? I think it's more of a result or a fruit. And you're wondering, like, Jerome, where are we going? Why are we arguing with Merriam-Webster? That dude was smart. He wrote that book. Do you even know what a dictionary is? It's like this book. They put it online now. You do? Okay. I was directing my my daughter. You could just hang out. See, here's the thing. We all know better than to act in those ways. We all know better, whether you're Christian or not Christian, to be hypocritical, sanctimonious. But that doesn't necessarily mean, if we're not acting holier than thou, that we aren't 
necessarily self-righteous. We can minimize those behaviors in our life because we know that it's not really socially acceptable to be that kind of person. We don't want people to endure us. But it doesn't cure the problem of our self-centeredness, of our righteousness. And here's the kicker. As Christians, I think we're prone to this. I mean, as Christians, we're meant to be the least likely people who are supposed to be self-righteous. By what we believe, by our doctrine, by our stated beliefs, we should be the least likely to be self-righteous. But all too often, we find ourselves the most likely to be self-righteous. Understand me, I'm not saying that we're most likely to be rude or ugly or holier than thou. We do know better than act that way. But we still find ourselves unwittingly drawn to self-righteousness. Now, I'm not saying this because I want to shame Christians. I'm not that preacher. I'm saying this because, and I'm included in the group of Christians that's drawn to self-righteousness. I'm saying this because I think I have pity and sadness when we find ourselves in those places. Because the truth of the matter is self-righteousness is burdensome. Self-righteousness takes a toll on you. Self-righteousness sucks and zaps the joy and the life of the Christian walk, and yet somehow the Christian walk seems so easy to go down that route. We become weary, and I'm sad for you. I'm sad for me when we find ourselves weary. Now, if you're not a believer, you're like, whoa, I must have walked into some sort of like family like meeting. <laughs> and you have. We're talking about Christians and how whether we realize it or not, we find ourselves in self, becoming self-righteous on things, even though we know we better than to act a certain way. But I invite you to sit and stay with us because I'm going to guess you're human too, and perhaps self-righteous is something that you maybe are prone to. I think it is. You could disagree with me, but you're wrong, and I'm right. <laughs> no, seriously, though, if you're not a Christian and you're just checking this thing out, we are glad you're here, and I believe that this will bring value to you no matter where you stand on faith, and I trust maybe God has even something more for you. So if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to John chapter 5 as we take a look at this? John chapter 5 is picking up where we left off. The last time we were in John was our Vision 2020 Sunday, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. It's been a while, so let me just give you a really brief reminder what, what we're talking about. John is the were the fourth in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by the Apostle John towards the end of the first century, decades after Jesus died and rose again, decades after the church has been in existence. He writes the purpose of John in John chapter 20 when he says, I, I'm writing this so that you would know, his audience would know and believe who Jesus is. He wants to answer the question, who is Jesus, so that people can believe and they would have life in him. That's why when, we, when someone's a new Christian or someone's reading their Bible for the first time, we say, hey, start in the book of John. It's the perfect book for that. Now, where we are in the book of John, in chapter 5, we see a shift. We, you may remember this from this fall. We were talking about Jesus replacing the Jewish things of worship in, the first, in chapters 2 through 4 in particular. You remember the new temple, the new wine, all that stuff? And they, those, those stories were bookended with two sign miracles that happened in Cana of Galilee. But now in chapter 5, we see an escalation before we had seen a hesitation, we had seen a reservation about Jesus, but now things start to escalate between Jesus and the religious leaders. Things are starting to change, and eventually we're going to see straight-up confrontation 
before he leads to the cross. But right now we see this escalation of conflict between them, straight up opposition, sometimes even official opposition. And you're going to, this is almost introduces that whole section. Read this with me, or follow along. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holidays, inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, was a, was a pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of six, pe- six people. They were just divided six by six, sitting around tables that seated six. No, crowds of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. 38 years. A long time. What have you done over the last 38 years? You think about biblical times, like I'm blind as a bat, you don't know this because of modern contact lenses, but I, don't, I, I might have been one of those dudes because I don't know that I'm good for much without my contact. My wife said, no, I'm not good for much without my contacts. There, there, there's no welfare system, there's no life for people in this situation. He sat there for 38 years. He was lame, by the way, not blind. But anyways, regardless... Let's keep reading. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets in ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. This miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, You can't work on the Sabbath. That law doesn't allow you to carry the sleeping mat. But he replied, But he replied, The man who healed me told me to pick up my mat and walk. He's just shifting blame. Like, no, he, he told me to. Well, who said such a thing? They demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, By the way, just a note. This man could not have been in the temple prior to being healed because he wasn't able to go in the temple. But now in his healed state, he's in the temple. Jesus finds him in the temple and says this, Now you are well, so stop sinning, or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. And here's this big shifting verse in the whole theme of the book of John and the narrative. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. Here's here's that escalation of conflict. But Jesus replied, My father is always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. So let's just walk through what we just read. The first five verses give us the setting. We see the when. There's a Jewish holy holiday. It doesn't really matter what the holiday is because all the holidays are really essentially Sabbath days. That's, what, that's the important meaning in the, in the setting. It's the, it's, a, it's the Sabbath. Not necessarily between the sixth and seventh day. Okay, you follow me? It's a holy day, therefore it's a Sabbath day. So we have this, he's in Jerusalem, there's a holy day, and there's a pool called Bethesda, which literally means, in Hebrew, the house of mercy. Everyone say house of mercy. Just because I'm going to come back to it in like 30 minutes, and you'll be like, where'd that come from? It came from here. At that pool, there's a crowd of sick people. They're lame, they're, they're blind, they're paralyzed, and the guy who'd been there for 38 years that we've already talked about. Now, do me a favor. Before we go any further, let's play a game against my, best, my better judgment. Put your finger on chapter, four, verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Do you have a number 1 there? Probably 
not. It's just probably a big five, right? Now, I want you to move your finger to the next number, which is two. Right? Now, move your finger to three. Now, move your finger to four. Are you there? Are you there? Let me ask you a question. Who's not there because there's no four in their Bible? Who has a four in their Bible? Who has a four in their Bible, but then maybe it's in brackets? So here's the deal. I know what Bible you're reading. If you don't have a four, you're probably reading the ESV, the NIV, the RSV, the R, the NRSV, the NLT. Why am I doing this? Simply because if you're reading the Bible and there's no four, truthfully, there's part of me that hopes that you don't notice and we could just keep going. But I think it's important to kind of let you know what you're looking at to help you navigate your Bible. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but there is a difference in manuscripts here, and it doesn't, doesn't rock my faith. But someone will take this and turn it around on you and say, look, you can't trust the Bible because there's no, there's no verse 4, and this Bible has a verse 4. That's nonsense. As a matter of fact, I think this actually makes me trust the Bible even greater. I don't have told all the time. Believe it or not, there's going to be a sermon down the road where we're going to talk about this way more in depth. Just don't miss a Sunday because it's coming. But some of the more modern translations, the ones that have come after the 1900s, just don't have it in there because it's believed this is not part of what was inspired that John literally wrote down because the most trusted, oldest manuscripts don't have it. So King James Version has it, doesn't even make a marking. NASB will have it, but there's a little asterisk or brackets or something that signifies that. Tell you what, I don't have time to really dig into this because I have a sermon to preach. We're just doing some nerdy Bible stuff here. Not nerdy. Scholarly. Bible stuff. On the church's Facebook page this afternoon, there will be a link to an article that speaks specifically to this verse. And it, 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 it will, if you're interested, if the Super Bowl is a board and a, a snoozer, you can read that, uh, at least during halftime. So, really cool stuff. And, and I think, honestly, if you're young and you're going to go into a setting that ends up people being conflict, you know, are, are going to challenge you and want you to deny your faith, this actually will strengthen it and your trust in the word. So, let's keep moving. Verse 6. 1, 2, 3, 5, 6. Verse 6, we see Jesus ask a question. And quite honestly, on the surface, it's a dumb question. Can I say that about Jesus? Like, here's proof that, that this story is not made up. Here's proof that Jesus actually said it. Because if someone's making up a story about Jesus, they don't want to make him sound dumb. But they're just quoting Jesus here, asking a, what looks like a dumb question. Would you like to get healed? Hmm, let me think about that. It's been 38 years. Nah. Who's going to write that about Jesus and make that story up? On the surface, it seems like a dumb question, but really, truthfully, don't we know people who find their identity and their brokenness and their sickness, and actually it's a risk to find health because you lose that and the dependence on others? That's another sermon, but there's a question there. Do you really want to get well? Do you want to be healed? Now, this man does not answer the question. He doesn't say, absolutely, yes, nor does he say no. He just goes into the, woe is me, it's impossible, it can't happen, I can't, sir. Do I want to get well? He doesn't recognize who Jesus is. He just says, I can't. There's the answer. It's not going to happen. For I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets in there ahead of me. What he essentially is saying is, There is no hope 
This thing is bigger than me. There's nothing that could happen. What I'm doing, laying here and hoping someone helps me out, is not working. And can I tell you, that's actually a good place to be. When we find ourselves at a place where we say, what I'm doing is not working, that I can't, we create opportunity and space for God to do what only he can do. Which he's about to do when he heals this man. Verse 8, Jesus stands up, doesn't bother correcting his theology about, or his, his, his outlook, or his mood, or whatever he's thinking. Nor does he pick him up and say, well, I'm here, I can put you in the water. What does Jesus do? He speaks the word, and the man is healed. Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And everyone says, amen, we should be shouting glory. You don't have to actually shout, but you know. Jesus is the source of healing. He speaks the word, and it happens. This man is healed. He begins, he rolls up his mat, and he walks. It's a glorious story. If the story was over there, we'd be like, praise God. Look at Jesus healing people, doing his thing. But the story continues. He's walking, and, the, and what's the very next part of, the very last half of verse 9 say? But it was the Sabbath. Now the Jewish religious leaders see this man walking with the mat, and they object. They say he's breaking the law. Breaking the law? How is he breaking the law? By carrying a mat? Like, where is that in, in, the, in, in like Moses' writing, thou shalt not carry your sleeping bag? It's not there. But they're saying, you're breaking the law. You're... you're compromising the Sabbath. And as you know, as we read in a few more verses, they'll actually go to Jesus and they'll say the same thing to him. How dare you practice medicine and heal somebody on the Sabbath? Let's talk about the Sabbath. Oh, goodness. Let's talk about the Sabbath. <laughs> Where does the Sabbath come from? We, we, were inter- we, know, we know that God created and the seventh day he rested, but really it was Exodus chapter 16 where we see the Hebrew slaves, they come out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, they're wandering, they're picking up manna, and every single day it's spoiled. They had enough for today, but then God says, on the seventh day, I want you not to toil, and I don't want you to go out there and collect. To get as much as you need on the sixth day, and it'll, it'll actually not spoil. You'll have it on your seventh day. Keep the Sabbath. Keep it holy. That's where we have this story. God is saying, listen, for your sake, for you workaholics out there, I'm spending all day Saturday in, in the office, um, this is for your own benefit. The Sabbath is for, for, for your benefit. And sure, this, is, this is to teach you that I am the, the provider. That you can actually live better working six days and not seven. I know that kind of is lost on us because we kind of think of work weeks as five days a week. But in a, in a pre-modern world, working every day to survive is kind of what you do. He's like, no, you work six and you'll live better. Then you work seven. If you go out there and try to collect manna on the seventh day, you're not going to find any because I am your provider. Same thing in God's economy. You, you can live better off 90% than 10%. That's God's economy. He is our provider. So that's the Sabbath. It's in, it's in place. So let me ask this question. If, if God established the Sabbath with his people, then why is Jesus breaking the Sabbath? And why is Jesus causing other people to break the Sabbath? I mean, didn't he come to fulfill the law? Not to abolish it? Couldn't he have waited another day? Like, I know it's been 38 years. You got one more day in you, buddy. I'll be back. No, Jesus knew what he was doing. Actually, if you read the New Testament, there's seven different occasions where Jesus breaks the Sabbath. He knew what he was doing. He's kind of picking a fight. Self-righteous. I think he's, he just really is righteous, so I guess we can say that. He knew what he was doing. He's not breaking the Sabbath that was given by God 
to Moses. He's breaking their Sabbath. He's rejecting a man-made religion that says, here's the structure by which you gain favor with God. It's a different, it's a different Sabbath. It's a man-made And this is important to note because if you grow up in church and you hear sermons and if you're new to faith or even if you've been here a while, you kind of think like, like there, was an early, there was an early heresy in the early church that said the God of the Old Testament is just a completely different entity than the God of the New Testament. Because Jesus is just blasting the Old Testament. Jesus is blasting the religious leaders and their abuse and uses of and what they've built on top of it. The problem is not the Sabbath. The problem is what it had become, a man-made religion, a system of rules and regulations. Here, let me, let me, let me give you some background here. So you have what's called the Torah, which is the, or at least the written Torah, the written law, the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Pentateuch. This is like the holy, holy scriptures for the Jewish people, like the prophets and the Psalms that we love. Okay, you might, not, you might not love the prophets, but I know you love Psalms. All the other stuff, they're like, yeah, it's good, but it's not nearly as authoritative and important to us. So the part that we like put the emphasis on is not as emphasized by them. It's those first five books. And in those first five books, there are 613 commands. And the oral law exists to help flesh out those 613 commands because, quite honestly, I was looking at something contemporary Jewish literature recently when I was studying for this message, and it's not talking about them. It's talking, like, way back when. It's talking about now. The thing was, of course 613 commands aren't enough for us to live life practically. Yeah? 613 is not enough to live? And out of those 613 commandments, there's 39 that, that have to do with the Sabbath in the Torah. So what oral tradition does, what oral law does, is it fleshes out, it builds on top of it and says, we don't want you to get anywhere close to possibly breaking any of these commandments, so we're going to, what they call, put a fence around the Torah. We're going to create space and make it so that you can't accidentally break a command of God. They ex- you know, they actually expand and adapt and still make changes even today. What you had is this oral tradition that started, and they would, some would claim all the way back in Moses' day that Moses came down the mountain and said, here's what God said, and they sat around and said, well, this is what it really looks like. And it's been tweaked over and over again, handed down orally until about 300 years before Jesus, and then it got into paper 200 years after Jesus, when they're like, we're really developing this thing. It's called the Talmud and the Mishnah, and you could read about that. Google it. But let me give you some samples of what was built. Not all of it's bad, a lot of it came from a good intention in a good place. But the stuff that Jesus was coming up against, listen to this. Sabbath prohibitions of rabbinical Judaism, which comes out of Pharisee, the, the line of the Pharisees. They were different, there was different sects of Judaism as well. But listen, in order to not break the commandment that you should not cut something into shape, which is, a, which is in the Bible, on a Sabbath, there's no ripping of a piece of paper because it might resemble cutting something into shape. In order not to break the commandment of writing, you don't want to agree to buy something because, written, because agreements to buy something are often written. In order not to break the commandment of reaping, what do you think of when you think of reaping? Taking the harvest, right? They don't want you climbing a tree because if you break a twig or tear leaves, it could be construed as reaping. In order not to sow, you shouldn't put fresh water in a vase of flowers. Can you see now why I called it man-made religion? Jesus is rejecting man-made religion that says, here's what you must do to be right with God. 
to not be accused of slaughtering, to not to stay away from slaughtering, let's not even draw blood for a blood test. Don't sharpen a pencil because that would be cutting into shape. Don't tear through a letter where the postage is at or where the address is at because that would be erasing. Don't open an umbrella because that's building. I don't know what kind of fancy umbrellas they have, but ours just... Opening umbrella is kind of like destroying it. <laughs> don't turn off the electricity during, during the Sabbath because you're extinguishing a fire. This is not bashing Judaism. This is just telling you about it. So you can see it's easy for us to dismiss these oral laws, especially because they were used against Jesus. But the issue that Jesus had was not so much with the oral law, because he even appeals to it at times when he deals with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. His issue is the self-righteous attitude of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of his day. See, the law, the oral tradition, that, that had noble intentions, but in the hands of fallen humanity, it's burdensome. It becomes a list of, that makes people weary, rules and regulations. And in the hands of some, the elite, it's a tool for being self-righteous. And for the rest of the population, it's a tool of being separated and left out. I have one point I want to make here when I talk about us being self-righteous and being prone to it. Because we think of self-righteousness as being better and holier than thou, but here's, here's where we can easily become self-righteous. Because we live out our Christian walk this way. Here's the point. Any righteousness, any righteousness that you earn yourself is self-righteousness. Any righteousness that you earn yourself is self-righteousness. See, the law reflects God's righteousness. It reflects his glory. It reflects his holiness and his goodness. And it is good. God's like, don't go after another man's wife. It's good for you, for the wife, and for that man. It's a good deal. God gives us his law to reflect who he is, but Paul tells us in Romans that it's impossible. Romans 3.20, For no one could ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. The law is impossible because we are fallen humanity. We can't check off every box to save ourselves but believing that it's possible for a moment, if we can construct a system to keep us straight and away from the bad and do the good, if we could believe that it's possible, at least functionally, if not, you know, not wanting to admit it, then maybe it is possible. Maybe we can, for those who are strong enough, disciplined enough, devoted enough, it's possible to be righteous. And I know, like doctrinally, we know that we are sinners in need of grace and Aaron said it when she led worship. There's nothing we can do to make him love us more. There's nothing we can do to make him love us less. Those are true. But we still live our life as if I could contribute 10% of that righteousness. We have been given a righteousness that's of Christ that's been given to us, but yet eh, it doesn't seem right that I couldn't chip in like 10%, 5%. I could do something to add to that righteousness. No, it all comes from Christ. See, self-righteousness happens because we play those games and we begin to take count and we begin to keep score and it becomes a measurement of pride for those who are devoted and dedicated. And maybe I don't hit it 100%, but that guy's hitting it 2% and therefore I'm better than him. Maybe not haughty about it, but I'm self-righteous. Not even in relation to other people. We live life with that burden of having to perform and I don't know about you, but the burden of having performed was not something that brings me joy, and it's not something that the Lord put on you. Let me go back to the story. Verse 13, the man did not know who healed him. 
He said he disappeared in the crowd. This is not because Jesus was going to do a random miracle. Jesus obviously comes back in verse 14 and says, hey, stop sinning. You've been made well, but, there's, but stop sinning or else something worse could happen to you. Now, you kind of read that going, whoa, what's Jesus' deal? It's like a bad juju, bad karma moment here. It's not that. It's, it's simply him saying, listen, he's not talking about you're going to be lame again. He's saying something worse in terms of like your soul, eternity. Jesus' statement here is, is, is with a focus of eternity on it. He's saying, I healed your body with the aim that it would lead to the healing of your soul. I conquered your sickness so that I could conquer your sin. The question is, who did this man think Jesus was? And that's the point of the book of John, Right? We don't know who he thinks Jesus is. We don't follow him because the story is not so much about him as it is Jesus. But it appears from what we can get, this man didn't understand who Jesus was. Later, Jesus heals a blind man in chapter 9 of John, and and that man kind of seems to understand, but this guy doesn't get it. There's no hint of recognition in this story. Instead, what we have is a guy who's been physically healed, but yet he's still blaming blaming Jesus for his faults, self-centered and preserving self. I think that's a lesson to us that we shouldn't be surprised how people respond with grace and mercy. Sometimes, you know, Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 17 of the lepers who he heals and only one comes back. All right. I'm about to wind it up, but let me just share with you a little preview of next week because next week's going to be fun. I read through verse 18, but really next week's sermon starts at verse 16. When they go to Jesus, and we see the shift, this escalation, they say, you have broken the the Sabbath as well. Jesus is like, yeah, I'm not even going to defend myself. I'm not even going to speak to that. I'm not going to de-escalate the situation. As a matter of fact, I'm going to raise you one and make it even more tense. Not only have I broken the Sabbath, but I'm going to identify myself with the Father. Not only is Jesus breaking the Sabbath, now he's guilty of blasphemy, and here's the introduction to the reason he would eventually die on the cross. Are you excited about next week? You should be. Any righteousness you could earn by yourself is self-righteousness, and that's why Jesus died on the cross, because we are given his righteousness. So here's what this looks like. Remember that word, house of mercy? May we be a house of mercy. There was no mercy for the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. May we be a house of mercy. May Radiant be a house of mercy where the broken can come because the system that they had in place of performance meant that the broken man had to stay broken. Lord, forgive us if that's what we put in place. And then I'd like to say this for those of you who feel tired and weary. Embrace God's Sabbath rest. I'm not talking about enjoy your Sunday. I'm talking about a rest that he provides for us as believers. If you are weary and worn out on religion, if the performance thing means you just got to get up and kind of hit the check marks of reading your Bible, man, there's a joy that I, I, I want you to experience, the joy that I want to experience, because sometimes I do the same thing. Hebrews 4 talks about a Sabbath rest that God has for his people. Let me read you Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. So there is a special rest still waiting for the, for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. There is a rest to be had, and it's the kind of rest that you can have that you can sing songs like, It is well with my soul. When this is happening, and this is happening, and this is happening, when my soul is rested, I can sing it as well. 
Augustine, one of the church fathers, said this, Our souls are restless until it rests in thee. And then Jesus said this. I put it on the board for you. Are you tired? And this is the message. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitted on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Sometimes I read that, and I think, I don't even know what he's talking about. And sometimes I read that, and I'm like, yes, Lord. I've tasted, and I know. Bring me back to that spot. The band's going to come here in a moment. We're going to come now, and we're going to receive communion. Let me have a word to those of you who are with us. You're not a Christian. If you're just checking out faith, someone drug you to church, I invite you to honestly seek an answer to the question of who is Jesus. Perhaps in this very passage, you saw a different Jesus, a Jesus that you did not know existed. Perhaps you need to reevaluate what you always thought was true of Jesus or what people told you was true. Perhaps our confession or my confession that we as Christians are prone to self-righteousness was like, you were like, yes, that confirms what I thought. But strangely, it was also what you needed to hear in terms of your view of him. I would venture to say that the potential is there that you hear a message like this and you've been searching and wondering and asking. You might find yourself on the other side of the line of faith and say, oh, I, I guess I believe. We are going to receive communion. And I want to close with this passage of scripture. It's, it's an appropriate passage of scripture to link this message with communion. It's Romans chapter 8. Speaking of the law, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the wickedness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sin- sinners have. And in that body declared the end of sin's control over us giving his son as a sacrifice to our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law could be fully satisfied. Fully satisfied. You can't satisfy it. If you think you can satisfy it, if you think you can manage your sin, then you don't really respect sin's power. And if you think that you could contribute to what God has given us, what Christ has accomplished for us, that you don't really fully understand what God, how needy we are and how sufficient he is. That he's fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature but instead follow the Spirit.